Next Chapter Podcasts. Welcome to How I Got Greenlit, and we're here for a roundtable. I'm your host, Alex Collegian. Uh, along with co-host Ryan Gibson. Today, we're also joined by uh, producer Pete, who's a longtime producer of the show and uh, our editor of the show. And our illustrious guest, Anthony Jaswinski, writer, producer, screenwriter, television writer, novel novelist, pol- polemist, polemist, friend of the show, friend of us, and uh, stealth godfather of the show has gotten us many of our best guests. Welcome back, Tony. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. I really love your show, actually. And thank you. And in a little while, we'll be uh, joined by another friend of the show, writer, producer, Chap Taylor. He was called away on an important issue and will be joining us in a moment. But we thought we'd start and add him in as we're rolling. So the roundtables, Tony, welcome this. uh, You did our uh, sort of, let's say, Coke classic show, our longer form individual interview show. The roundtable thing is relatively new. This is our third one. And uh, Pete has been strongly advocating it for a while. It's more of a conversation. It's more kind of uh, fast paced. If for those over 90, it's kind of like the McLaughlin group without the uh, politics it's more kind of timely, you know, I, uh, we always saw the show, you know, like your interview and with others is more of like something for the vault, you know, it's your life story. It's, it's your journey in the business and, uh, it's an evergreen listen. These are more about sort of the, the issues of the day. So, you know, we wanted to obviously, you know, the big thing on our minds and in the business minds right now is the writer strike. And we'll talk about that a bit, but we didn't want it to sort of dominate the conversation as we have the last two roundtables. And in fact, we were talking about, there's a couple great articles going around sort of in the, you know, I'd call it like the strike Twitter verse of, um, uh, what is going on and why. And, uh, you know, we were referring to a great article that came out in vulture, Uh, A couple weeks ago, June 6th, uh, came out. The binge purge. TV's streaming model is broken. It's also not going away. For Hollywood, figuring that out will be a horror show. So that's a, that's a sort of um, tossing, you know, a uh, a Molotov cocktail across the bow. But we all read it. Uh, We've all shared it with a million people. Having having had it shared from a million people, it's been the talk of the town, as it will. In it, it basically describes, you know, I would say in the history, and Tony, you know, back me up on this, the history of Hollywood has always been, oh, a money guy that's not in entertainment, but loves, you know, movies, and they're going to come in and show us how it's done. Come on in, and we'll take your money and, and and send you out wearing a barrel in a few years. And you can look at Coca-Cola buying Columbia. You can look at Transamerica buying uh, Paramount as, you know, precursors to that. So I think Hollywood, when Silicon Valley rose and made all this money and started looking at Hollywood covetously, we thought it was just another one of those deals. Come on in. We'll take your money. We'll send you out on a rail. And it's not really happening that way. The other, the, it's going the other way around. The business is being bent into a Silicon Valley culture. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, we have Chap on the show. He'll speak, you know, more elegantly about it because his eyes, I think, are more on television with respect to the platforms. But I agree that it's just two different models that are clashing together at this point, which the Vulture article and the New York Magazine article kind of spoke to. Um, you're right. It's like, you know, as we remember, just almost just a few years ago, there used to be the German money that came in. There used to be the French money that came in. There's different territories. The Japanese money, the Chinese money, whenever somebody made money. Right. <laughs> we didn't quite throw them out on a rail. We let them play a little. But at the end of the day, we had money to sort of fill back our, our pockets and make shows and films. And, you know, the, the easiest way to sort of describe this is kind of what you most of your audience already knows. It's just that. Silicon Valley has basically come to town and they have algorithms and they have a different business model that we used to have. We used to always have the, you know, let's play golf and pat each other on the shoulders kind of type mentality that's been going on for the last century. Um, I call the 20th Century Fox sort of mentality, the big studio mentality. 
Um, you can never make a living, but you can make a killing. Right now, we had the tech bros that sort of came in with their shareholders, and it's become very Wall Streety to a certain degree. That's not to say that hasn't happened before in Tinseltown, but it's happened to a degree to where now we can't get off the rails with respect to uh, uh, the platforming with the eight to 10 episodes. Um, it's all a long way of saying, you know, what, what, what chap, I think the last time he was on your program, he, he very well spoke to the idea where they see the writers and other creative people to a certain extent as coders. And they don't understand why we went on strike and they don't understand why people want rights with respect to residuals and smaller rooms. And they're not going to go away. I think they have, you know, the money, unless this whole thing becomes a big pyramid scheme, which sort of collapses on itself, they have enough money to wait it out. I'm not sure if the Writers Guild does, but, you know, it's not hyperbole to say it is an existential crisis with respect to careers and a business model that's changing. And I'm the first one to say, well, maybe progress is the dynamic of changing and maybe we have to let things go. And that's natural and ordinary, but the idea where you're being singled out, you know, I thought the chat GTB thing, which is the AI, was kind of laughable only a month ago. Now I think it's probably really in there. It's not in the rear view. It's sort of in, you know, the uh, uh, <laughs> the driver's side of this car. Um, they could figure out how to put three or four super writers together with AI and keep going on what they're doing. Um, you know, again, I think that's all a long way of saying it. it's like Silicon Valley came to town and sort of changed the dynamics. But I'm not sure if they know how to drive the car at this point either. Um, it's Soderbergh said in one of the articles, I thought it was very eloquent, where, you know, he's like, is this is platforming the cryptocurrency of the entertainment industry? You know, it kind <laughs> yes. of might be. I in think it's in it's that like article. A lot, a lot of people with the Apples and the Paramounts got hooked to it too. And now they're not sure if this is kind of the right boat to be in. Um, you know, so that's kind of where I look at it right now. Um, I just, I just feel like it's going to get, unfortunately, a lot worse before it gets any better. And I don't see any end in sight unless both sides want to come to the table, but I don't see the tech studios wanting to do that. That's a good uh, point to bring in one of the questions that I sourced from a couple of listeners and friends of mine that listen to the show. Uh, I, a few of us who are aspiring creatives trying to be um, screenwriters in the business. This one came come from a friend of mine who lives in West Hollywood named Ben. He said, is the plethora of streaming good or bad for writers? Do you feel in your estimation, like because there's so much content being generated, is that like a positive? Does it mean that there's more opportunities or is there some darker backside to it that maybe people who are not experienced and getting trying to get into the business should know about? Well, I mean, it's a cafeteria now, isn't it? It used to be uh, a year or so ago, it felt like there's always a new interesting show that's coming and there's writers that were always kind of welcome to a certain extent. I don't think it was like, it's not like the broadcast anymore where it's going to be 15 writers in a room, but maybe it never should have been. I do think that there's always there's always a gem in, in a, a heavy truckload of TV shows or content or ideas that get there and they sort of, you know... They, they separate themselves from the other. And with that, I think there's always a bright side for young writers to kind of come aboard. Now, with that said, I don't know what the magic formula is anymore because they're trying to push writers out with mini rooms. Um, when, I went, when I did a couple of picket line strikes, I met a lot of young people who weren't even in the guild yet. And they, were, they weren't looking for a way to get in and by striking. They were looking because it's sort of what you're your friends were asking the questions and they wanted to know what was happening. They felt this kind of existential threat that's going on with them not even having been in the business yet. And they were asking me, what sort should I do? And my only answer is what I've always said is just keep writing scripts. Um, I think that the business will change, but the, the idea of creativity won't. And if you feel like you're against the wall and you're not sure what the trend is and how you get in a room, just keep writing and find your voice and do good work. And sooner or later, that's going to break through. I don't give a shit what the trend is and what the business model is. It's like, 
you're always going to be able to like write a good script and it's always going to be something better than an AI can kind of do. I mean, I just feel that there's, you know, there's a lot of worth in our, in our industry because you can't algorithm creativity as much as people will disagree with that. I just feel like our industry is a creative industry. So there's always a risk, but that's, that's good. You know, the idea is I think risks can change things and make things better. And um, I would just, you know, tell your friend in West Hollywood, it's like, just keep doing what you do. And every script you write, you'll just get better. Um, I don't know how many people are going to be in a writer's room in the next couple of years. Uh, but the fact is, like, good work is always accepted. and It always kind of finds its way through the trends in the business model. Well, uh, let's take a pause here for a second and welcome uh, our, our other guest, uh, Chap Taylor, writer, producer, Chap Taylor, friend of the show, previous guest. Welcome, Chap Taylor. Thanks, man. Sorry. Sorry I'm late. No worries. So we were just talking about this, uh, this Vulture article that you had uh, shared. Uh, I think I saw it on your Twitter. Somebody shared it with me. Um, the, the Binge Wars and uh, Tony... Uh, just quoted Soderbergh um, as saying, you know, is is uh, uh, are the streamers the um, the crypto of our time, which I thought was, a, you know, he's always good for a good poll quote. My other poll quote from him this week was he said, uh, chat GBT never ha- was hung over. You know, that doesn't have the life experience to, to, to create something of, you know, that, that's relatable to human beings yet. Um, but uh, welcome to the show. Um, we were just talking about, uh, actually, this is our producer, Pete. You never met him. He's been the uh, behind the scenes for, for our whole run. But uh, we were talking about um, a little bit about how the in the past, you know, uh, uh, let's say dumb money, as they call it, that is uh, not entertainment based money has come into Hollywood in many waves before. Uh, but now the technology money is coming in Silicon Valley. Um, and they're not just bringing their money. It seems like they're bringing their business model and their culture, uh, more, you know, likely to stay or to create permanent change. Um, you know, what, what do you think is the sort of, uh, long-term implications of streaming? I mean, are are we going to get wise or is it going to change or are we going to see some big players fall out in the next few years? What's, what did you take away from this article that you shared? Well, you know, obviously I should preface it by saying, I don't know anything more than anybody else. I don't think anyone, I think the fundamental problem is that the guys who are supposed to know don't, I don't think that there's any more certainty in the C-suites of these major entertainment companies than there is on Twitter. Um, you know, over the last decade or so, at least three major technology companies decided to enter the entertainment space. Netflix is, is obviously a pure play television delivery technology company and Amazon and Apple for reasons that no one really understands decided they wanted to be in the entertainment business and they kind of do it as a, a loss leader in Amazon's case to draw. Yeah. It's theoretically to drive people to Amazon prime. Um, and nobody really knows why Apple does it, but they certainly, everyone went all in on streaming and, and it became one of those, you know, you mentioned dumb money from outside, you know, it's, it's, it's Hollywood lore that every decade or so someone shows up on a bus, whether it's German tax money or the Japanese or, or high net worth, somebody's to kind of get fleeced and finance, uh, pictures that shouldn't otherwise be made. These are everyone, everyone involved in streaming was, was an entertainment company or a technology company. This is Warner Brothers. This is Disney. This is Paramount. Um, Sony doesn't have a streamer, uh, and and at first that was gonna was considered a weakness for them, and it looks like maybe that was a smart play on their part because they just sell their entertainment products to everybody. To everyone else, yeah. Yeah. Um, the answer is nobody knows. The answer is that the fundamental laws of economic supply, even in entertainment and even on the internet. So if you spend ten to make a product that makes you back one you will eventually go out of business. And there is no magic internet formula that, that makes those two numbers meet. And for a period, you know, for four or five years, uh, everyone threw money at streaming because Wall Street rewarded their, their stock price for having more subscribers. 
And so it was, they were incentivized in corporate suites to drive the stock price up because that drives their compensation. They junked a, a economic system that, that was really lucrative, um, which was putting movies in movie theaters and selling advertising on television. And the, and the residual structure that's been around since, what, the early 60s, right? So Well, they've been, they've been chipping away at that for years, starting with when cable came into, into play. But yeah, certainly every, every technological development is an opportunity for corporations to pay people less money. <laughs> to claw back yeah, well, money. Yeah, it is. That's yeah. exactly what they – I mean, that's why, you know, that's why we uh, didn't, don't make any money off v, VHS or, or DVDs or, uh, you know – the story is always right. what's well, a new technology. It's a new business, and and the writers' strike is always you know a couple years behind. Yeah. I mean you yeah. know the the O seven uh, was about clawing back DVD money, and then the DVD business went away three years later. Right, yeah, so much. Yeah. we're always a little bit behind the the, the curve. Um, let me ask you guys a question. You're both working writers in film and television. Uh, this is something Pete had alluded to before we started rolling. Um, when you're in a meeting either pitching your own thing or a general meeting. Is there a different uh, conversation between a, a broadcast or a more traditional entertainment-based uh, executive and a streaming executive? Are, are, there, uh, are, they, are, are they answering to a different master, either the algorithm or, uh, you know, uh, as Pete was asking, these, these sort of um, categories that you see on a streamer, thrilling or, you know, Father's Day favorites or whatever, like – uh, are, are, are all these executives just looking for a great idea that's compelling to a human audience or are they driven by different masters? Tony? Um, well, I mean, I've only been in so many TV rooms cause I've, I do mostly features, but yeah, but Netflix, they all do features as well. I yeah, just watch I extraction mean, too, you know? Well, I mean, you mentioned Netflix and that's interesting because it's sort of like, Hall of Mirrors when you go in there. Literally, the building itself has all these strange <laughs> cubicles and people come in and out, and you're not sure who you just met. Um, as opposed to going into a studio, whether it be for television or film, and you kind of know one of the executives, there's a round of people, you talk about your lives for five minutes, then you sort of pitch them. The Netflix model felt a lot more, again, going back to Silicon Valley in a way. I don't know. I mean, they're always, they always have a mandate. I think right now it seems to be like the two kings, Netflix and Amazon, want huge IP and they want super showrunners and kind of that's it. Um, I, I mean, in my opinion, in, in, in my experience, I've always been sort of self-generating um, or I picked a book that I like that was regular, that, that was, you know, available for option. And sometimes I would get lucky and sometimes I wouldn't. I just feel like now when I'm walking into the room or the Zooms of the Netflix of the world, I already have a lot, had to have a lot of things attached in order to get to the next place. Um, that's, so that's the development, experience. yeah, the development uh, culture has gone away, and you have to walk in with a package and a producer, uh, yeah, a director, and, and, you know, a it's star. Sort of like last year, everybody was drunk, or two years ago before the COVID, where like some of the show that you know that's a great concept. It felt like sort of like the spec golf courses of like the '90s and the '80s, where you can sell a spec on a golf course, and you know I think that had to change. The the bubble had to pop, but. With respect to your question, is there is there one room that's sort of different? You know, I, I still have the experience where like the old studios, it feels like you speak that language. I'm still trying to figure out the language of of tech um, mm -hmm. when these guys came to town. It's kind of a hard, different way for me to pitch. But then again, I don't have like Lord of the Rings on my side to even get through that door. So a trend can change and always does, but that's what I'm experiencing right now. Actually, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, Pre-existing IP versus original ideas. Guys, how's that affecting your world? Is there original ideas left or do you have to affiliate with a, an IP to get things done? No, I'll let Chad speak to that. There's many original ideas around. There's just no appetite to buy them. Um, there's the studios, Studios and streamers are obsessed with IP. They have what they believe are good reasons for it, it uh, largely having to do with marketing. They want to put things into development that already have a pre-existing audience. Because awareness. It's so, yeah, it. what they call awareness. Yeah, because it's so hard to break through the, the kind of 
tsunami of, of things distracting people. Um, and so obviously with, with the motion picture studios, it's their franchises, it's superheroes, it's, um, maybe, maybe horror franchises because horror films are cheap enough to take a, a flyer on a great idea. And then they just keep making them. Um, tell it's just, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's just IP as far as the eye can see, and there's no real appetite. Anything, any original idea that gets made, it's by accident. But new IP has to come from somewhere, right? So uh, when they do make a, you know, um, when when somebody makes a, and again, I go back to horror because it's inexpensive and it's one place that people still will take a chance uh, on, on some limited occasions. Um, I guess maybe maybe you could put action under that if you had a really great. Well, I think idea. of the purge, which sort of combines horror and action, was an original, clever idea. Yeah, but that was sort of twenty a, years ago. I mean, that, well, I, you know, just as a, as a, they created their own brand. I mean, but, hey, yeah. Extraction was an original IP, uh, of course, written by the Russo brothers. <laughs> graphic novel. It I, well, it was a it was it, it was a graphic novel, but that's what I'm saying. But it was written yeah. by the same guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so th- um, that script was around. I mean, Joe Russo wrote that script many years ago, set in Mexico. And 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 he pulled it out when he got some juice. Yeah, the 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 vaunted uh, desk script that came out. But of that's the a dust. great example, yeah. Ryan, because yes, having you know, he's he's in a unique position, <laughs> but having made a successful yeah. action picture, they literally brought Chris Hemsworth back from the dead to make more of them and you will see more extraction. Movies. He was clearly bullet ridden. Oh no, no, no. It cut to the hospital. Yeah. But I loved it. I have no complaints uh, both movies. High, high thumbs up for me. I loved them. I thought it was weird that extraction two was just about taking the bullets out of his body. I, I just, it seemed weird. <laughs> right. And also an impacted root canal that they found along yeah, the extractions. Way. Let me, let me ask you this about IP. So I'm reading this morning, uh, like I'm a huge fan of Mr. Robot, uh, Sam is Ismail's, uh, show. And I think he's, he's a talented guy. Apparently he's, he was trying to develop Metropolis for a few years and they just kind of spiked the, uh, spike the show. It was going to be a show for Apple. And I, I got to the point where I'm like, what Gen Z knows who the hell Fritz Lang is? Like, at what point does pre-existing IB, IP become ridiculous? Like, who is that for? There, I don't, in this particular case, obviously, Sam Esmail is, is already under a huge deal at, at UCP, or he was, and, and he's a very successful guy. But that's, but that's going, that's all, you know, they, they just canceled J.J. Abrams' $200 million show. What you're seeing is economic reality return to the business. And somebody sat down and said, uh, this is going to cost us $250 million. We estimate that X number of people are going to watch it. That is a poor deployment of our shareholders' capital. And, uh, and they didn't make it no matter how successful it is or how good it might have been. And, you know, one of the kind of creeping suspicions that many people have is, as your your listeners probably know, one of the biggest contentions in this current strike is data, is uh, whether the streamers will reveal how successful individual shows are in order to compensate uh, the creator so that the bright actors, directors. Right. How, how can you earn royalties and how can you earn bonuses if yeah. you don't know the ratings? If it's big, we want to know because we can, we can participate in that success. No, they don't want to tell anyone that information and the, Immediate assumption, obviously, is, well, they don't want to tell you if it's successful because they want to pay you more. The suspicion that falls close behind is they don't want Wall Street to have that information because it may be that there are very few people watching many of these shows. And if it gets out that they're spending X dollars or X billions of dollars and they're actually getting less eyeballs than, you know, CNN midday, then... um, then they're in a lot right. of trouble. Their stock that it's a thousand dollars per viewer when you divide. Yeah, it something up. like that. Yeah. So it, it, what you're, you're just seeing the kind of arms race end multilaterally, and you're seeing the air go out of the bubble, and you're seeing Wall Street now insist that these companies be profitable. And what that means is they have to make more revenue than they spend, and that means that they can't spend three hundred million dollars or whatever it is on a show that's not going to generate revenue, and a lot of people might not watch. Actually, you wanted to go back to something you guys were talking about a second ago, if we can. You're talking about IP and, you know, the, the big studios mining comic books and stuff, things like that. And that seemingly being the never-ending thing that 
we you have to contend with. I'm curious, like with I saw today on Twitter uh, that like the last six big superhero movies have all lost money. So one of the questions that, that um, one of our listeners asked me that I think kind of relates to this is, is like, does that give you guys hope for unique ideas, original ideas that like they're eventually going to have a come to Jesus moment and be like, we aren't actually making money off of this. Like, like you're talking about JJ Abrams' show being canceled. They're like, we may not be make, make this money back. Does that make the oper- doors open for new stuff? Or is it just going to be like you were talking about going back to Fritz Lang and Metropolis in order to find, you know, <laughs> things that can be turned 100 into a hundred year old IP. Yeah. Well, I, I sort of equate it with like big pop hits compared with punk rock or whatever the new music is. Um, I think there's always going to be big one hits that are going to come out. Um, with that said, I think you can have a hodgepodge. I always think something creative and radical and fucked up will come out in original that can compete and do well against the marvels of the world. But they're never, I don't, except Gardens of the Galaxy, which sort of like took an interesting shot and kind of gave a bit of, you know, the Deadpools of the world gave a bit of individuality with their brand. Um, does that mean those original ideas get eaten up into the bigger machine? Sometimes they do, but I always think that as of now, you know, original ideas like Lucy and what have you can coexist with the big giant marvels of the world, but I just don't think one is going to cancel the other out. I always think that there is going to be an appetite for something original that's going to come out because we just get sick of hearing the same song 14 times. I mean, what happens when you hear a bad song 14 times? You obviously like it because it's all you hear in a way. So <laughs> I think that's why these original movies will come out in television shows and, um, you know, they won't, they won't compete with um, the big brand, but I think they'll always survive. Um, that's my opinion. I, uh, I mean, I, I used to think that past with prologue and the history of Hollywood, and I'm certainly a fan of learning about things, uh, you know, the new Hollywood that we revere now, you know, new quote unquote in the seventies, the early, late sixties, early seventies, the reason that those creators like Coppola and Scorsese, Lucas Spielberg, the people that we, you know, sort of worship today were given a shot as the, you know, infant terrible of the time was because Hollywood was out of ideas. They had lost money. They were going after the old business model, the uh, traditional studio models of contracting actors and things like that was starting to crater. You know, there's a famous story about, say, like Dr. Doolittle, which was, you know, at that time, the highest uh, budgeted movie for Fox, you know, lost, uh, you know, all the money and so on. And so they were out of ideas and they're like, well, shit, maybe these young guys, if we, we throw a few bucks at them, uh, they'll come up with something new and different, right? And that and that begat, you know, uh, Easy Rider, and that begat, you know, uh, all the all the things that we love about the '70s and how um, even today I feel like we've reconservativized our culture uh, and certainly our business. To um, I don't know that Taxi Driver would be made today. You know, I don't know that some of those films that we worship and adore and even executives will say behind closed doors that they love. And that was in- inspiration to get in the business. And you say, okay, let's make that. And they say, no fucking way. Right. So um, it's usually when Hollywood is desperate that innovation occurs. I don't know if that's going to happen again, but that has always been the the way that the, the, the crazy people and the innovators and the mavericks tend to slip in when there's cracks in the walls. I, I would also say I'd be really careful about, you know, unless you're seeing the financial reports of the studios or whatever film they're releasing, I, I would also be very careful in saying what films made money and lost money, especially big blockbuster temple movies like that. I mean, it's the one thing you have to realize is that when you have a big now flash is a TVD at this point, but it doesn't look good for the show, the film, um, when a studio makes a movie like that, and let's say that movie costs $200 million, the math usually is that they spend $200 million, the same amount of money they spend on production, they spend on advertising. And I think that's something that you have to realize. So it is possible that these big, huge blockbusters are taking a hit in the end or breaking zero. But you have to also remember that for Disney, these are evergreen uh, properties 
And so they exist on their streaming platform or in the universe, I think, forever for them. So you could say maybe they don't make money today or maybe they break even today. But you'd, I, I, I'd be hard-pressed to believe that they make a $200 million Marvel movie and it doesn't make at least its money back. Now, you... Over a sure, long time, but I, 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 yeah. and that might be. I, I don't know if that's a stupid. I think the estimates are that the Flash is going to lose about one hundred and fifty million dollars. That's a lot of money for a studio movie. But that doesn't mean they're going to stop making. Not at movies, all. Though. I mean, like the, the Little Mermaid didn't do well either. But that's not that Disney's not going to stop making money off its brands. They're just going to sort of take a beat and try to figure out kind of what went wrong. I mean, if you know the story of The Black Cauldron, which is a Disney movie, which they was in production for like 25 years. Alex, you and I have talked about this on the side. That movie cost them somewhere around, they say somewhere around like 70 or $80 million in the early 80s. Of 1970 dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that film started production when Don Bluth was still like a painter there, which is like 1972. So, um they got crushed on that and then they never released it. So you, there are projects that tank and I think maybe the flash unfortunately is one of those. It looked great, but I, that's for a different show. It's also like, you know, the one thing that we have left is that the AI and the algorithm cannot predict a hit. I think that's what goes to what Tony was saying earlier about, you know, the AI's never been, you know, w- woken up from a hangover before or whoever coined that phrase. No, that was Soder. Steven Soderbergh said that, yeah. And AI has never had a, a hangover, so it, it, you know, it can't relate. Uh, I think it's pretty clear at this point that there is some degree of, of, of fatigue, superhero fatigue. All these movies yes. are the yes. same. They essentially have the same plot beats. They essentially have the same arcs. They have the same... 30-minute, too-long, three-end... Chap, did you know that Batman's parents got killed? Did you know that? Yeah, I heard that. Um, Yeah, they got shot right in front of him. Yeah, I'm not a superhero guy per se, but I I certainly... If you make... You know, Marvel had an an unimaginably great run, you know, whatever it was, 27 movies. uh, And it may just be that the 28th movie is a bridge too far and they need to give it a rest. Um, The same thing with DC uh, is... You know, obviously they had some specific circumstances because the star of the film had some legal problems. Um, and so it impacted their ability to market it. But fundamentally, maybe people are just fucking tired of superhero movies and they want to see something else. Now, does that mean that the studios are going to produce something else? I don't know. Does it mean that they know what to make? No. I mean, Paramount just released another Transformers movie. So the... The yeah, well, let me ask you. Is, as you said, the optimistic take is this isn't working. We're in a lot of trouble. Maybe we'll just try something else, and if it's inexpensive enough, we'll give it a shot. Yeah. And if that's the case, yeah, that's where that's where great movies—that's just great, critically, critically great movies and great entertaining movies come from. When some guy has an idea and he knocks on enough doors and they let him do it, and it turns out that it's a great idea. I mean, maybe. Maybe the cracks open, or maybe they just double down and you know yeah. make Die Hard Seven. Uh, oh, I can't wait! Else. Well, yeah. is is IP the new movie star? Is that here to stay? Yeah, it has you been know that, for a while. Yeah, it's been yeah. for a while. Yeah, I I think yeah, it's and that's not going away. That's it. Like no I, more movie stars. Fun, you know, as as you guys all know, fundamentally, <laughs> the decisions that a corporate executive made are primarily driven by fear of being fired. Fear of making the wrong decision, fear of deploying an enormous amount of money that costs them their job. It's always easier to say no. And when they do say yes, they want to have as many guarantees as they see it that their decision will be successful or at least will be defensible if it goes wrong. So the way you do that is, you know, it used to be you hired the biggest movie star, the biggest director, the biggest writer, you paid him the most money. Now what you do is you get yourself an IP, the bigger, the better. And so Amazon, you know, paid $250 million for the rights to Lord of the Rings. Just the rights. And they didn't get to use any of the stuff that people actually liked. So they had to make up a new original story. (laughs) It had to be around the characters we all know. Yeah, Yeah. other than, you know, so people have, um, you know, mixed reactions to that series. Is it, is, did they get a billion dollar reaction from it? My sense is probably not. Um, But they're going to make another season because what else are they going to do? 
I, I think it's funny that you mentioned Transformers because Hasbro, the executive, I think the CEO of Hasbro bought E1 a few years ago for $4 billion, I believe, in, in an attempt to monetize all of their IP. Yeah, to try to make a, a vertical integrated you know, content and entertainment uh, monopoly, and it didn't it, work. It, they sold it pooped it. the bed, and now they're trying to sell it. And so, and in and, and, and Wall Street Journal, the guy said, "Yeah, you know, it's not as easy as it looked, and we're going to double down on what we do best, which is making toys." So, you know, they they thought that it was easy, and they thought the IP was the only thing, but that's not that's not. You know, there are versions where I mean, Robert Iger is the most successful entertainment CEO in recent history because of exactly that idea. He recognized that Disney's real strength was the distribution of stories that they could monetize across all different categories. And so he went out and he bought himself Pixar and he went out and bought himself Star Wars. He went out and bought himself, uh, ultimately bought himself Fox, but which may or may Marvel, not have been a good idea, but Marvel. Lucasfilm, and he Fox. Had, yeah, he, he had just an went incredible crazy. run, which they not only made money in the theaters, they spun off TV shows. As you know, they built amusement park rides. Nobody sells consumer goods better than they do. Like that was a really great idea. Wow, people loved those original stories. We'll see. Will people go see Indy Five? I don't know. I, I'm not. I don't. I never. I see a lot of people kind of spiking on social media that the Flash failed, and part of that is because writers were on strike, and some of them were just mad. But I, I don't. I never root for any entertainment, any movie, any TV to, to show fail. To fail. That just seems both, both kind of heartless and also self defeating, because the more successful movies there are, the more movies that get made. The more successful TV shows there are, the healthier the companies are that hire us. So it seems really dumb, frankly, to kind of, but, you know, Twitter and social media include just incentivize stupidity uh, and the worst instincts in human beings. My point being, I'm not rooting, I don't think any of us should be, you know, we, we want to root for them to find new stories that work. It seems clear that if you are digitizing an 80 year old Harrison Ford, to put on the fedora the one aging. more time, you're really kind of reaching, and maybe you're that scraping the bottom of the barrel. Maybe that movie's great. I don't. I'm not. I don't mean to select it and, and to pick on it. I'm just suggesting. Boy, Indiana Jones was a magical experience when I was a kid because it was yes, it threw it threw back to, you know, to kind of 1930s movie role serials that that were before my time. That shot for shot, Spielberg remembered, but it was the a thrilling adventure ride of a movie that it was just fantastic. It was magical. Yeah. It was inspired by other things, but it was an original, but it was idea. all yeah, it was about Steven Star Spielberg Wars and Harrison too. Ford and, yeah. and, yeah. and uh, which is more traditionally what art is. You're inspired by the things you yeah. love. You want to do your own version. And that, in that case, in both cases of Star Wars and Indiana Jones, they went for uh, Lucas could not get the rights for Flash Gordon. So wrote his own uh, Spielberg desperately wanted to make a James Bond movie and the uh, the broccolis wouldn't uh, hire him, so he made Indiana Jones. So you know, there's something to be said of not getting the IP. Um, and in both cases, that you know, Lucas even called Star Wars, you know, the biggest uh, low budget movie you ever saw. Right? I mean, that both of those films were relatively low budget, even in their era, because at the time Spielberg was. Um, a bad bet because he went over budget on Close Encounters and Jaws. And I even think, uh, what was the previous film with Goldie Hawn? Um, so uh, they only, Paramount, you know, only gave him a, a, a relatively low budget and he had to prove himself, you know. So um, what, I don't know, man. What, here's the real question, Pete. Why are you aspiring to be in this rat ass business? Yeah, I mean, that I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who was had like a lunch with some successful producer, or whatever. That he was just picking his brain for advice, and his, the the main takeaway advice he had got from this guy was, "Don't become a writer in Hollywood. Don't go into TV or movies." I mean, would you? Do you guys? Would you say that as well? Would you? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I heard that when I was younger too. I mean, that seems to be like a producing one on one thing. What they say. Um, you know, I could tell you years ago, before Neil Moritz became a super producer, he was actually an indie producer. And he was one of my first general meetings when I went to Los Angeles. And I was like, we are right now. I was reading the trades too much. I was concerned. I was worried. I was following trends. And he says, 
you're a writer, stop reading those things. And he wasn't saying mm. it in an insulting fashion. He was saying, focus on what you do because all the other stuff is going to super freak you out. Um, I would never tell somebody not to be a TV writer. It's like, it's like saying somebody who wants to be a novelist, you want my advice? Don't write books. It's like, well, what else am I going to do? I'm not going to go back to retail. I want to write books. You can always find a way in. I just don't know what that magic ingredient is right now. And it seems to get harder all the time. But I do believe that if you focus on one thing and you try to push off all the noise, you'll be able to at least focus on something that's going to be good by the end of the day. Also, just general advice. That's just general bad advice from a producer if that really happened. I mean, telling someone not to do something that they, if they're young and uh, I don't care what age they are, if they want to do it and they feel there are stories about people who are in their 50s who want to become actors or want to become comedians, like, stop it. Anybody who tells you no, unless it's like, I want to become a fire jumper and you're 65 years old, probably not a great idea. You don't have the physical abilities anymore but that that's a different story i, I like on the you know, other I mean, other I mean, hand so what you said frank uh, was 65 the, when you when when angel's ashes broke out you know because he was a teacher in new york city for so many years he couldn't find the time to write and find an agent i always think that there's a way as long as you know you continue to focus on your craft and what you want to do I, I mean, Alex, you always sit, talk about writing and how much you have to write before you can actually consider yourself a writer. I think that's pretty universal with all our writer guests. Like, you have to just keep writing pages every day. I mean... Yeah, to quote Throw Mama from the Train, a writer writes. But um, look, I think that there's so much uh, rejection in, in this business. For a, a producer to say to not do it, is actually a favor because what you're supposed to say is fuck you because you have to have belief in yourself. So what that guy's doing is he's saying, if you're not serious, get out. And if you are serious, you're going to tell me to fuck myself. I mean, when I finally wanted to direct my own film, I called our friend who had produced a lot of low budget films. And I said, I want to direct a film. And he said, don't do it. And he hung up and then I called him back and he said, good, you passed your first test. <laughs> I think also if that producer was worth anything, he would have read the guy's stuff and seen if it was good or not and then tried to get him to write spec scripts. Yeah. I mean, for look, free. everybody needs different things. <laughs> Negative reinforcement is, is probably more uh, powerful than positive reinforcement. There's a lot of I'll show you. Uh, that that have fueled many successful stories. I'm going to show the kids back home. I'm going to show my old girlfriend. I'm going to show that producer guy. You know, I'll show him. There's a lot to be said for that. And every we all we're all different people. We all need different things to um, to 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 goad us on in our darkest hour. But I think belief in yourself is probably the most important. Yeah, I mean, like, and there's a flip side to that coin. Like, I've met young writers our directors or snide cousins who would tell me like, what do I do to get rich like you or something? First of all, <laughs> there's no ingredient. Secondly, I'm not rich. It's like, I I've been in the wilderness for so many years, continually writing one script after the other, it can fall apart and has, and it's gotten back together. But the idea it's like, you know, your, your guest, Craig Perry, a few episodes ago, hit the nail on the head when he said, don't ask me what the equation is to be successful and rich. Like, ask me advice and I can give you as much advice as I can. And you have to kind of go from there. And I always do cartwheels from somebody when I was younger and still to this day that I'm older, when I get advice from people, you know, and we all knew Arnold Copelson. Yeah. He was one of the, the angry lions of the world, but he was also one of the last lions in Hollywood. Um, and he loved, you know, no matter what age you were, what place you were in status in the industry, he loved advice and he gave you very honest advice back. And as long as there's still people in the industry that really respond to giving advice and trying to like shepherd or mentor people, whether it be closer or at a distance, I think the industry will always survive that way. I can't speak for what's going to happen with the platforms and the dot coms of the world coming into Hollywood because that could change the game. But I also think, I always think advice and mentorship is always a strong bond in any industry to continue for it to survive. Yes. Agreed. Pete, any questions from the viewers? We're coming around 
on our one hour mark? Yeah, well, actually, this is uh, this one is for me relates directly to a specific piece of advice. You know, I live in Washington, D.C., and, you know, a big part of any creative pursuit is is access to, you know, wherever the business is, is taking place. And a lot of I've known a lot of creatives over my uh, life that have moved to bigger cities because they feel like they need to be in those places. I'm just curious, like in the era of kind of the decentralization that the Internet affords, do you need to be in L.A. or New York to be a screenwriter or can you d- do that from anywhere? Or do you need to like be able to like be in a room at the drop of a hat still? Or do you feel like there's some, you know, post pandemic like. Well, Tony and I both live on the East Coast, so we may not be the best guys to ask. But you live in New York, right, chap? I live in New York, yeah. Tony splits between New York and Florida. Um, you know, it's hard to say. The business has changed a lot. There used to be an argument that when at your age and, you know, younger people, uh, it's important to, to meet other people. And that doesn't even necessarily mean in a meeting. It means meeting your contemporaries, you know, uh, while you're a budding screenwriter slash, you know, barista, your friend might be uh, a budding producer slash assistant at an agency, right? And and as you, uh, it, it's really a war of attrition, right? You know, so let's say I knew 100 guys when I moved out here and 10 of them are still around. They go into other businesses, they have families, they have to do other things, whatever. Uh, so there's something to be said about your, your cohort. Uh, so if you have a strong cohort that are also in the business, you know, you can rise together. I think relationships still matter. It's just harder to make them, you know, like I don't know how millennials and Gen Z's, um, collaborate and communicate and meet each other and share ideas in, in this modern age. You know, for us, it was parties and it was friends of friends and it was, having a beer or being on a softball team or, you know, just traditional sort of like networking as they call it. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, guys, you know, you, do you work with newer people? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, my, my experience to me, the answer is no. I, I feel like unless you're a television writer or you're in a room or you're a TV creator, you can kind of be anywhere. Um, the only time that I felt like I need to be in LA boots hit the ground every morning was when I was creating a television show because there were so many moving parts and you need to interview and you need to meet people and you had to do ADR. Um, with respect to being a writer, you know, before the, the plague or the COVID hit, we didn't have Zoom. And I think there's something to be said with having Zooms, not pitches because they're difficult, but to have those general meetings, you know, when somebody's in New York and they wrote a good script or Washington, D.C. and somebody's in L.A. who's a producer, you can complete those meetings on Zoom just as fast and efficiently as you could when you're in Hollywood. You lose a little about the relationships, but I was never a producer, so I felt like I never needed to have a strong link into Los Angeles. Um, but it sort of speaks to a little what Alex said. Like I almost think to each their own. Like if you if you come, you know, into this industry wanting to be a producer, it feels like a few years ago, Los Angeles, you kind of had to be there. I don't know what the answer is right now. It just feels like people are still continuing to get work done. Well, not now because of strike, but people after COVID is, have been continuing to do business via Zoom, um, just as you know, well as they could have when they had to meet in the room. But TV, especially broadcasts, was a different world. It felt like you had to be in Los Angeles for that. What do you think, chap? Is it also your personality? Are you more of a people person, gregarious? And, uh, you know, I, I would say Tony, Tony's more of an individual and he is effective in, you know, writing. I mean, obviously he's friends, but chap, you're more of a maybe, what would we say, in a... a um, Bullshitter. Uh. <laughs> are, you, are you trying to say? Are you trying to say Tony's a sh- Tony's a shut in? Tony's a shut in, and Chap is a uh, you know personable person. Bullshit. Uh, to, to each his own. I mean, there's an old there's an old Hollywood saying: "Don't be a blonde in Hollywood." Meaning, if you get off the bus and you're a pretty blonde girl, there are one million other pretty blonde girls, and you will disappear into the crowd. So you have to still live in Los Angeles. 
there is an advantage in in as as you guys have mentioned. There's an there still is even today an, an advantage in immediate access, which is your buddy gets a job in a mailroom, your buddy gets a job as assistant to a director, your girlfriend, whatever, whatever. Like you're surrounded by people who all want the same things, and if you develop a network of of kind of mutually supporting friends, that can be advantageous. Do you need it in in the same way that you used to? Because you had to be in physical proximity of the people so you could go on the lot and have a meeting? No, not really. I mean, the 90, 90%, 95% of the meetings I'm in are, are digital or Zoom. So, you know, so living in, if, if you, and obviously <laughs> the days when you had to fax things or or, or FedEx your script by <laughs> Friday is not a thing anymore. You can have anything can arrive in the in touch of a button. So my advice is, to just really have great material. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a dumb thing to say because, of course, but the business was always competitive. It is more competitive than ever. There are more people who want to do it. There are obviously is a push to diversify the kinds of people that do it. So it's just a much larger body of all kinds of people from all kinds of places who want to do one particular thing. And it's really hard. It's much more competitive than it was when, when I started, I think when we started and I don't know, to be perfectly honest, if you want to be in to, to create, to tell stories today, I don't know that I would want to be the guy walking around with a screenplay, trying to get people to read it. Um, I think that I would really focus on creating, I hate to say this, but I would really focus on creating things that I, on creating things that I could then put out into the kind of environment ecosystem. So I would write a novel. I would create a, a graphic novel. I would make shorts on the internet. I would find a way to raise money like Alex did and make my own think, do what Robert Rodriguez did. Like Robert Rodriguez had whatever his friend's bar that he could use eight hours a night a Chevelle, a guitar case, and a pit bull. And he made himself a movie out of those things. And Craig Perry, who was on your show, you know, the story is, someone we know named Warren Zive was an assistant in ICM. This nice guy comes in with a cardboard box full of VHS tapes. Please, will someone look at my VHS tape? No one else at ICM would look at them. Warren Zive went over to Craig Perry's apartment because he didn't have a VCR, and Craig Perry did. And it was El Mariachi. And Robert Rodriguez became Robert Rodriguez. So does that happen today? Probably not. Security's not going to let you in the building these days for obvious reasons. But if you make that movie, you can put it up on Vimeo. You can. There are lots of distribution platforms where you can get that in front of people. And if you've got that thing, if you are telling a story in a way that other people are not telling it, you know, look at Barbarian, right? Like, so the guy was a moderately successful member of a comedy troupe. He wanted to write horror pictures. He wrote this very unusual horror script and I won't give anything away, but there, you know, the structure was unusual and there were twists where there aren't usually twists. And I, he was turned down by however many people. And finally, I think it was Roy Lee took a shot on him. Well, he just, you know, he's making deals for 10 million bucks now. Now that is extremely rare. That is like winning the lottery. It's literally on that scale. Right. But the secret is he wrote something that no one else had written and he just kept knocking on doors until someone finally said, yes, again, I don't know that I would want to be, a, a young man with a screenplay at this point, but I certainly would be trying to make a test of concept, a short film, fucking TikTok videos, like whatever it is. If you have a, a voice and you have a style and you have a passion to tell stories, I would go and tell them as well as you can without waiting for other people's permission. Because if you are do, able to do it in such a way that it gets other people's attention, then they will come to you and ask, and, and there will be opportunities. Uh, um, in that same vein, I mean, The Blackening, which premiered uh, recently, uh, directed by Tim Story, that was writ that was based on a short film uh, from a comedy troupe, and got a big sale, and is a really I, I've got friends who help produce and make that movie, and um, you know that's another lot. You know that's a lottery winner. You know they make this story that's a horror story based on. <clears throat> a small, excuse me, um, you know, a short film and it, it, it gets traction, it gets bought, script gets bought and it gets made. You know, you just have to stay creative. I think that's the, I think that's the story. 
and self-motivated. Abs- yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, that's there's the, no. That's there's the hardest nothing, thing. There's nothing in. There's nothing in this business for anybody who who. You do it because you have to do it. Well, Tony and I do it because we're too old to do anything else. But you do it because you have to. And Tony's successful. You do it because you have to. Like you are driven to tell stories. There's no other reason to do it. If you want to make money, go go work on Wall Street. Like if you want to be famous, show your ass on TikTok. Like there's just many better ways to achieve the things that superficially people pursue in Hollywood that in many ways don't really exist anymore. Right. There's there's no more friends in Seinfeld money. People make very good livings and some of them get really rich, but it's very rare. You just ha- and, and the rejection and the the changing mandates and something being true on Friday. And it's not on Monday and just all the rest of it. It's just it's just really. Yeah. And the luck and timing. You could do your job exactly right. And, yeah. you know, the, the regime changes. Your and success is not things. necessarily under your own control. And right. you will be reminded of that on a daily basis. So the only reason to subject yourself to that is one, have a partner who has a regular corporate job with health insurance and a check. That would be one. Right? Done already. <laughs> cool. Then you are qualified to try. That's <laughs> something you can expect. You're ahead of the game. At. And the second yeah. step is, okay, if you've got somebody, a man or a woman who's willing to take that ride with you and subsidize you while you drive Uber you know, and write, uh, God bless you. Give it a shot, but don't, as Tony said, like, you know, your job is to get better. Do not chase trends. Do not think, well, no, you know, uh, if this thing made, if this thing won the box office, I mean, all that fucking box office shit, just, it never helps. Oh, uh, okay. This, this genre, uh, won the box office this week. I'm going to start writing that. Well, you've already missed the trend. It's over, you know? Start the next trend. What you want to do is you want to tell a story that no one else can tell. What you want to do is think of a really great idea and, and execute the shit out of it. And again, that seems like all you have to do to win the World Series is win 75% of the games <laughs> and then score and win know? four out of seven games. It seems so easy. Why doesn't everyone do it? Well, because 162 games are hard and there aren't a whole lot of guys that can play professional baseball. And even if they do and they make it to the pros and they get on a team, and the team makes it to the playoffs, and the team makes it to the World Series, they lose because it's really hard to do. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of variables. You know, I mean, the equation I always brought up was, was talent plus or talent times like uh, concept equals success. I don't know if I believe that, but I also think that this is a thing that comes back to a lot of your episodes. A lot of it is luck. And I hate to admit it because I don't want to give luck credit, but a lot of it is luck, you know, that comes down to not just this business, but a lot of businesses. And I think if you can kind of marry your talent with a good concept and luck and timing come into play, you know, you, you get past the threshold. Um, but if you don't, you keep doing what you do, you know, that's the only advice I can give people. Cause that's what I keep doing. So, you know, chap keeps doing, we all keep doing, but I do believe every script you write, you know, even though you throw them against walls, they make you better as a writer, you know, um, and uh, there's there's a certain success, internal success, I would call it, you have when you finish the script and you're not sure if it's good, but it's well written and you feel like your next thing is going to be even better. You know, it's uh, it, that's that's the definition of a craft. In my and that's opinion. also it the really important is thing is, is to allow yourself to feel that victory of completion. Uh, the second that you outsource your yeah. uh, self-worth uh, to this business, uh, you, uh, have failed. You will, uh, yeah. I mean, the, that, that, the Palma documentary, he said it's beautifully. He said, you know, success comes so rarely, you know, and you have to sort of embrace it when it comes and you have to like, look forward to your failures and your positives equally. Um, but when that success comes, you have to embrace it and it will make you a better person. All right. And with that, I think we've uh, completed the roundtable. Does anyone have anything to add further? Very good. Everybody hang in there. (laughs) (laughs) Hang in there, kitty. Go get a poster. Hang it on your wall. Um, Yeah, just keep swimming is all we can say. And don't let anybody tell you to quit. 
and figure yeah, out how to use TikTok. Unless you want to, unless you want to quit. Unless, unless you, <laughs> unless TikTok. you, unless you want to be talked out of it and go find something that you won't quit, that you can't quit. Or as Chap said, you know, we can't do anything else. This is this is what we love. Uh, this is a dysfunctional love, and uh, but there it is. Um, and I think a lot of people, I, I know Pete that you love it and, and you aspire to it. And that just means you just got to keep, keep going, you know, anyway, this has been, uh, how I got greenlit another happy, positive ending. To- <laughs> 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 um, uh, we'd like to thank our guest um, Anthony Jaswinski and chap Taylor. Uh, we appreciate you guys taking the time. As always, I am your host, Alex Collegian. You're, we're joined by producer Peter Musto and my co-host, Ryan Gibson. Uh, this has been How I Got Greenlit. And according to Pete, I need to tell you to like and subscribe <laughs> to our Twitter and our Instagram uh, to keep finding out more about how to not get in this business unless you slip on a banana peel and fall on uh, Ted Sarandos. But um, we appreciate your listening. And uh, we're also at how, how I Got Greenlit at Gmail to uh, ask us questions that we don't have the answers for, but will wax poetic nonetheless. And check out our new website, which is up and running, which is at howigotgreenlit.com. Uh, you can see all the episodes there. It's also really important, folks. We can't stress this enough. Our producer, Pete, will beat us. If you are on Apple, the Apple platform for pods for a podcast, please give us a rating, five-star rating review. If you think we deserve a five-star, we do. And also leave a comment or, uh, you know, just give us a review. The more the engagement, the more we will surface and uh, you will be aware of new episodes and uh, all the new things. Anyway, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thanks for participating. And we are How I Got Greenlit. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Next Chapter Podcasts.